So when I was growing up in North Carolina, in Charlotte, uh, as a kid, you either wanted to play for Dean Smith or against him. Um, and if you were a Tar Heel fan, you, you hated the Blue Devils. And uh, if you were a Blue Devil Duke fan, you hated the Tar Heels. Uh, I had, come on, I had, uh, I had family members coming from all, all, uh, all over the place in the ACC. You know, on the East Coast, ACC basketball reigns and rules. Not until I moved to Texas uh, did I see the, the power of football. And uh, here it's all about football. Uh, you could argue this year, of course, Big 12, probably the best, best league in the, in the nation, I suppose. But year after year, you know, the ACC turning out great uh, basketball teams and players. Uh, when I was a junior in high school, I heard about uh, a guy. I was a big, uh, big UNC fan. So I heard that there was um, a player coming out of Wilmington, North Carolina, who was going to be the next Phil Ford. Anybody know Phil Ford? Or we got anybody? Okay, two of us. Uh, who, yeah, some of us, he was a great guard that played for Carolina back in the day. Well, uh, this young man came on to the campus at UNC and, and rarely happens, but he's, by, you know, a few games in, he's starting for Dean Smith. And, and people used to say that only Dean Smith could hold Michael Jordan to under about 15 points a game, you know, his freshman year, uh, something like that. But he ends up um, winning the national championship game, hits the shot against Georgetown, uh, and John Thompson, Patrick Ewing was playing. Um, and uh, from there, you know the story, Jordan goes on to the Bulls and arguably, I'm still going to argue, arguably the greatest basketball player who ever played in the NBA. I know the LeBron you know, debate, and LeBron continues to dominate, and he's an incredible player. But the point is this, when Jordan takes the court, when he would take the court after, gosh, just not too many... Uh, too, too many games into his career, if you didn't take him into account, then you were foolish. Uh, you were crazy if you didn't say, you know what, that guy is on the court, and you don't just put anybody on him. You're going to put your best defender on him, and then you're going to double him up whenever you can. And then when you do that, he's going to get 12 assists in the game. And you have to take him into account. The same is true with LeBron. It's going to happen when Tom Brady takes the field in a couple weeks. Is that a couple weeks? Yep. Uh, you got to take the player into account, and if you don't, you're foolish. Today, I want to talk about, or really ask you a question to start our time together. I want to ask you this. Does the evil one take you into account? Does he see you as a weapon coming against him? Uh, Tony Evans said on Saturday night, in fact, his book, uh, Kingdom Man, begins this way. He says a kingdom man is the kind of man that when his feet hit the floor, in the morning, the devil says, oh, crap, he's up. And we all ought to live our lives that way. Not, not that we're going to taunt Satan, but, but, but that we would understand the battle that we're in. A kingdom man understands that there's, there are spiritual forces at work and that there's an evil one. The Bible tells us that he's seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And he is up against all of the forces of God that are, that are advancing the gospel in the world. And what I want to challenge us to today is to think about um, the fact that we're in a battle. And today we're going to talk about what it is to face spiritual opposition. And I want you to think about it in two ways. One, it can be personified in people. You may have uh, some folks that are coming against you uh, if you could 
you know, put a name or face to it, some that might be challenging you. Now, I'm not talking about people who are just questioning you. I'm not talking about people who just don't like you because of your personality, doesn't jive with theirs or whatever. That, that happens. I'm talking about people who are opposed to you because of your stance for Christ. Uh, you can also look at it this way. Spiritual opposition comes in the form of constant temptation and then our giving in to, to sin. We all wrestle with temptation. And for men, often... It's things like greed. It's sexual temptation. Some of you in a crowd this size were, are, are wrestling with, with pornography. Uh, we're wrestling with, with, uh, with sexual temptation and falling into sexual sin. Some of us are in habitual sin. Spiritual opposition that comes against us. Uh, it comes in a couple of forms. And today we're going to really qualify that a bit. Because um, I want you to... Well, let's go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, placing this in context, we're going to look at chapter 4... More than, uh, more than we are three, because uh, chapter three is there, like all of the Word of God, it's there for a reason. It just lists all the different people who are involved in building the wall. Now we're going to see Nehemiah uh, getting after the work. Now we're talking about, throughout this whole series of messages, we're talking about Christian uh, leadership at the core. We're learning a lot of different things along the way. But we're talking about what it is to be a godly leader. We've said that uh, when Nehemiah heard the word in chapter 1 last week, if you weren't here, uh, he heard the word that the walls of Jerusalem had, uh, were in dis disarray, uh, disrepair. And the people had no place to call their own. Now, that was a big deal back in the day. Uh, more so maybe than we, we would say now. Jesus said you can worship God on that mountain, on that mountain, in that place, or that place. But this, this signified the fact that God's people were no longer united and under his reign and rule. The way he responded was significant. We talked about it last week. When he heard what happened, Nehemiah, the first thing he did, anybody remember? The first thing he did was pray. Prayer is not our last resort. Prayer is always our first resort, and we often forget that. Immediately we start, you know, and, and particularly if, if we have a bias towards action, as many of us do as men, we start to get after it. I'm going to fix this thing instead of stopping to pray and to seek the Lord and His guidance. I want to encourage you, uh, whatever you're facing today, that you would pray first. Have you prayed as you seek to solve some problem or enter into some issue or challenge that you're facing. Let prayer dominate. Let it be the first and last. Oswald Chambers says we can't do more than pray until we've prayed. And that's a great uh, axiom truth to live by. So in chapter 2, he goes to the king, and this was a lot more of a bold move than we realize. He goes to the king requesting that he go some 1,100 miles to Jerusalem and to rally the troops and the king, sure enough, granted him access through different places along the way, through provinces, uh, gave him, uh, you know, really documentation that would allow him to get there. And then he goes, he even gives him the, the resources needed. Um, a lot here in regard to his leadership. He goes, he inspects the walls himself before he tells anyone he wants to get the facts. Uh, this is a great uh, form of leadership. I'm going to get the facts. I'm going to take a survey. I'm going to see what's up. And now I'm going to come and say, here's what's happening. Then he starts to cast vision among the people. And in chapter 3, now we see that, uh, that he's going to bring all the people here. They're starting to work. And it just starts to name all who will come and join him. Now, I think it's interesting. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. It says, and next to them... 
the Tekoites repaired. Okay, so it has all the list of all these t- uh, tribes and groups that are involved, family groups, really. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Now, here we find not everybody's coming along, right? Uh, not everybody is going to join in. And uh, as, as a leader, you know this. As you seek to rally people uh, towards, the, towards God's work or maybe in your workplace, not everybody's coming. Some of you have seen what's called the diffusion of innovation. Um, it's a bell curve of how to lead change and how people respond to change. Um, and, and what you see in, the, in the, uh, the, the diffusion of innovation, if you've seen this, you have the innovators who are, who are kind of, if it ain't broke, break it, right? I don't know if you work with anybody like that, but if it ain't broke, you know, we got to change this. No, change nothing. It's working. Let's just work the strategy. Let's go. And, and about 2.5%, they tell us, of the population, which is a very small percentage, is Come on, change. You know, their core value is change. And then, then as you move forward, you've got the early adopters. Then you have uh, the, le- the late adopters. Those are about 34% each. And then you have uh, really what happens on the back end of that, the late majority. Uh, well, actually, it's the early majority, late majority, or 34% each. And then you have the laggards. Um, and they're, they're about 15% on the other side of the bell curve who are saying, we ain't coming. You know, uh-uh. They ain't doing this. Um, you can change all you want, and, and they may come, they may not come, but what Nehemiah is, is, uh, realizes here, and I think it's important as Christian leaders, not everybody's coming. But if God's calling us, and together we determine this is how the Lord's leading us, and this is true for a pastor and a church, we're moving on, and not everybody's coming. And, uh, and for pastors like myself, I want everybody on board, right? But we got to move forward, and this is what Nehemiah does. So in chapter 4, uh, let's look and see. You've got your hand out there, and you can follow along with me as we move along. Before we begin in chapter 4, I want to say this, uh, or answer the question, what is spiritual opposition? I want to be clear here. Um, let's be clear about spiritual opposition. You might say, well, uh, I've got a friend at work, and he knows I'm a Christian, and he kind of gives me the cold shoulder. Okay, that's not opposition. Um, you know, he's always asking me about my faith and no, those are questions. That's not opposition. And we need to be really clear about that. Uh, well, one time this guy told me, you know, that he just didn't believe like me. And I feel like I'm getting persecuted. That's not persecution. Those are questions. Uh, we can enter into those conversations. In fact, we should enter into those conversations and seek to win uh, these men and friends over. So I want us to be clear. Nehemiah's life, we're going to see this, his life is being threatened. Uh, in fact, uh, this week I was looking again at, at a, a website. You can look at Persecuted Church. There's one called Open Doors, a ministry to Persecuted Church. Every month, 322 Christians are killed somewhere on the, uh, on the planet. Uh, ten, ten or so will die today because of their faith. That's persecution. 214 churches will be destroyed this month. Uh, you know, lit on fire or, or attacked. 722 forms of violence will be committed against Christians uh, just this month. Violent opposition, which we really don't face here in the United States. Praise be to God. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. When one is honored, we all rejoice. 
And so we come alongside the persecuted church. But I want to be clear. Here's what I'm talking about so that we don't pretend that we're being persecuted like our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world because of this great country we live in. Uh, but spiritual opposition, write this down, comes from those who oppose the word of God and, and, uh, and, and or the work of God. So there may be people that are challenging you. There may be people who in your workplace who, who want, uh, maybe they won't give you a particular um, you know, steps towards, uh, towards progress in your work uh, because you're a believer. And today, wanna, uh, again, I'm going to challenge you. If you're not being opposed at some point in your, uh, in your life, uh, it may be that you're not a threat to the evil one. We don't go out looking for trouble. But I would argue if you're about the work of God and if you're seeking to be a witness and a testimony, uh, you're going you're to face opposition. You're going to face it from other people. You're going to face it in your own life. It may come in the form of, of satanic attack on you personally. And uh, I want to talk about that today. So let's dive in. Chapter 4 goes like this. Now, when Sanballat, all right, this is going to be a key player. You remember we introduced uh, these two guys, Tobiah and, and Sanballat, uh, in chapter 2. We see them in verses uh, 10. And so we have Sanballat, who was a Samaritan leader. Uh, he was an official, uh, and some believe maybe a military leader. We'll see why here in just a moment. Now, when Sanballat heard that we... Now, remember, this is a journal, really. This is, this is Nehemiah simply writing what happened, his firsthand account. So you, you, that's why he shows up, we. You feel like you're reading Scripture uh, as we normally do along the way, and then you realize, oh, wait, he's just telling the story. This is him. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building... See, it's in the first person. We were building the wall. He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. So a lot of mockery and jeering. And he said in the presence of his brothers, okay, and the army, here it is, of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? He's saying, are they going to actually finish this and start practicing what they want to do here? Will they finish up in a day? I mean, look at him getting after it. He's just mocking them. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, the other one in opposition, we're going to see over and over again, was beside him. And he said, yes, what, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, it'll break down their stone wall. And I'm thinking, is that the best you got? Come on, fox jumping on a wall. But he's saying, it's, it's just going to fall over. Now, verse 4, this is Nehemiah. Hear, O God, for we are despised. He says, hey, God, listen, do you hear this? Turn back their taunt on their heads, on their own heads. Flip that around back on them and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are, they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger and in the presence of of the builders. Now, what he's doing here, again, watch this. He faces opposition, and the next word is not, so I said, sticks and stones may break my, your bone, you know, or fox, I'll show you a fox. Um, you know, no, he doesn't do that. Instead, he prays. And I think this is critical for us. You know, the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. Nehemiah responds to this kind of verbal attack, at least at this point, but it's, it's more than that. Uh, they're going to come after them, and he knows it. If Sanballat truly is a military leader, and he's coming at the army of Samaria saying, look at them, that's enough to get you a little bit, you know, shaking in your bones, your, your, your boots a little bit. And he, he now responds with prayer. 
But then look at what it says in, in, in uh, verse 6. He prays, and then it says, so we built the wall. Isn't that great? Opposition comes against him. He prays, and then he says, whatever. He faces opposition, prays, and he presses on with resolve. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I love that. The people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites uh, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to, to be closed, in other words, they're making progress, they were very angry. Now listen, men, the closer you are to the Lord, the more work, the more you're seeking to be a witness for him, the more opposition you're going to face. The further you get down the road with what God's called you to do, the more opposition you're going to face. And again, if we're not facing opposition as godly men, we may not be doing the Lord's work. Count on it. It's going to come. It's a part of the deal. In fact, Paul would say uh, that in, in Philippians, you know, he would say over and over again, uh, the fact that he was facing opposition was proof that he was about God's work. You've heard it says, well, the, you've heard it said that, well, the safest place to be uh, is in the will of God. Says who? That's not biblical. The safest place, yes, the safest place to be is, is to be right in the center of where God wants you to be, ultimately. But it doesn't mean you're, you're not going to face opposition. It doesn't mean you're, that people aren't going to come against you. It doesn't mean that in, in Paul's case or in Nehemiah's case, it doesn't mean you might get killed doing it. I've been in parts of the world where I was sharing the gospel in places like India. I've been parts of Africa up against Muslims who were present. I was with a group... Uh, where we're quickly, our translator was saying, we've got to get out of here. I mean, I've been in places like that. I'm looking at some of you who, who've been in some of these spots where it gets a little spooky, a little scary. But there's a reason that we go into these places where the gospel's not been heard. And there's a reason it's not yet been heard. Because there's opposition. That's why. And it's evil and it's satanic opposition. I have seen, uh, I've seen demon-possessed people. Uh, not, not just, I've, not just in, in other parts of the world. I've seen people who were oppressed by satanic forces. I've seen medicine men in places in Africa where, they, where you're going, that guy's possessed by, by, by a demon. And, and you, know, you might be thinking, oh, Jeff, come on, they're just crazy people. No, no, no. The scripture tells us what's going on. And when you go to other parts of the world where people understand the spiritual realm even better than we do, it, it helps them explain what's going on in the world. Where we wonder, why did he do that? What is up with that person? And they say, I'll tell you what's up. Satanic forces at work, that's what's up. And we don't often think that way here in the modern West. We've got this figured out. We're too smart for this. But if you look at Scripture and see what even Jesus taught us, it, we know that there are satanic forces at work, and we need to have a, a, an eye for it. So what happens then, they go on and they plotted. Look at verse 18. They were very angry and they plotted. Don't miss this. Those against you will plot together and come, it says, and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed. There it is again. Every time you see opposition, you see that he prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who, who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till it come among, among them, till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. 
At that time, the Jews who lived near them, near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, we mu- you must return to us. They're saying, you've got to get off the wall, come out of Jerusalem, come out into the, 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 the outskirts of Jerusalem and come back to your homes. Come, let's live out here. And so what happened is, for the sake of time, we'll just bust through this and I want to see and, ap- and apply. It says that what happens, you may know this, is that Nehemiah says, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Look who they're fighting for. Men, this is what we're doing as men. Fight for your brothers, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And then what happens from this point on? The work resumes. God, it says that when the enemies came, God frustrated their plans. And what Nehemiah did, he said he set up half, half of them held their spears, shield, bows, and, and, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that that each, look at this, labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with another. So it's like he's holding the trowel in one hand and he's holding uh, his weapon or spear in another. He's working with one hand and he's trying to fend off the evil one with another one. Swords strapped to their side and, and, and the man who sounded the trumpet was beside them. And then it says in verse 19, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall. Look at this. They're starting to be separated and they're saying, this is not good for us to be separated. Let's work together. We've got to guard each other. Let's rally around each other. Come together, he says in verse 20. Our God will fight for us. Imagine this scene. They're working away on the wall, literally having to fend off the evil one. They got guards around them so they can keep on working. This is such a metaphor. It's a picture of kingdom work. It's the work of the church. As we press on and seek to advance the gospel in the city and in certain uh, domains of culture, it is hard work and we need each other. We can't be separated on the wall. We've got to come together. I'm preaching to the choir a bit this morning. We've got to come together as men. We've got to be in, in, in connect groups here is, is our context on Sunday mornings. We've got to be in study and, and prayer together as men. You've got to hold each other up and not go at it alone. And that's why I praise God that you men are here together. We'll be encouraging each other in the Lord. You know, I've watched, um, there's this new Planet Earth 2 that's out right now. Has anybody seen this? If you saw Planet Earth, this is amazing stuff. It's just one sequence of worship after another for me. I'm watching this. But they always show, when they show the, the, the savanna, you know, or the, the somewhere out in Africa, they always show um, the wildebeest, right? And it's going to be the lions who come around, sneaking around, and they take one out that's not with the herd, right? The young one that's run off a little bit, bam, he is dinner. Because they're going to gather around him, and they're going to attack him together. And in the same way, men, if you don't have other men, if you're not courageous enough to be open and honest with other men about your life and the struggles that you have, you're going to be torn up by the evil one. He is roaming like a lion, is what Paul says. He's seeking to devour, and he'll take you down. Now, before we break into our groups, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want you to see now what what, uh, Paul tells us, how we face um, opposition, and we're going to draw from this text, and and, uh, I'm going to just walk us through this part rather quickly. As you can see there now, how to face spiritual opposition. uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 
Turn to verse 24 and 26. In fact, you can see it there on the screen. And it says this, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Now that's, that's not easy to do. Able to teach patiently enduring evil, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I want you to notice the posture here. Now, this, you, you say, well, that doesn't sound like you're warring against opposition. Well, no, we're not warring against opposition. The Bible tells us, no, no, don't strive, don't battle against, don't war against others who may be quarrelsome, who may not understand your faith. They, they, they've, been, they, they've been snared, captured by the devil, and our role then is to bring them out. And so what I want you to see here, how, how to face spiritual opposition. First, before you do anything, we've already seen it, Nehemiah prayed. Okay, so pray. First thing you do is pray. Secondly, be optimistic and remain positive. I want, again, I want you to think about a challenge that you're facing. Maybe it's, and you say, well, I don't know if I'd call it opposition. Well, name it for what it is. There is there's spiritual opposition that we're facing when we seek to follow the Lord. Maybe it's coming in the form of relationship, a family, or a person who's against you in some form. Be positive and remain optimistic. Uh, the, the Christian leader uh, should always remain optimistic. That's one of the most uh, important traits of a leader. Optimism is, is the great trait that will keep you going. Now, uh, the, now look at number three. Recognize who the opposition really is. We've talked about this. Recognize who the opposition really is. Now look back at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 and 16, right there in the same chapter. It says this, Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel, here it is again, about words, which does, not, does no good, but only ruins the hearer. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. This is such a good word. If we had time to dive into this, there's so much going back and forth, bantering, and oftentimes it ends up in the political arena nowadays. And, 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 and all of this bantering back and forth really doesn't, doesn't do any good. Uh, it doesn't progress, or, or I should say, advance the gospel in any way. And, and so look at number four. Treat the opposition instead with gentleness, patience, and humility. We see this back at uh, second, well, second Timothy 2 there, verse 22. We're, we're, to, we're to correct our opponents with gentleness. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, you see the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. They see the Spirit of God in us. Number five, refuse to quarrel with the opposition. Again, this is hard for some of us. I've said it before. If your need to be right is greater than your need to be loving and kind, then you've missed the point. Uh, we often want to win an argument, and what's going to happen is we ultimately will lose the battle. Number six, don't fight alone. We saw this with Nehemiah. Stay with others. Bring in godly counsel. And I would argue if it's a spiritual battle, um, like sexual temptation, other temptations in your life, be accountable. Be accountable with other men. Number seven, uh, remember the greater mission. And this is where 
I want us to land, and I'll, I'll close with this. Pray that God will rescue your opponent. Think about some who may be coming against you. You know, the way to respond, too often we simply respond, uh, you know, fire with fire. Um, and, and you might guess that as a pastor, I get, I get what I could call opposition at times. Um, I, I get some rather, you know, challenging emails or phone calls. Anytime, you know, you kind of seek to change a little something, something. I thought Sunday morning was awesome. I show up Monday morning, I, I've got, I got a voicemail. Why we got men going to Great Hall? Why are we going to do that? I hope you're not in here. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm going, what? You know, and, here's a, and this guy didn't even come to the Great Hall. Like, you didn't even come. You don't even know what we're doing over here. And, and you know, is that, is that spiritual opposition? Not really. It's a guy who just doesn't like change, right? So we need to respond with love and tenderness. And because what's going to happen is, see, uh, when we're facing others, God, God says, listen, that's an opportunity to persuade and to rescue them. There's a reason that they're opposing you. And it's because they don't know the truth or they may be lost altogether, probably are. But they're opposing you for sharing the gospel or seeking to live out your faith, making fun of you. They probably are lost. And the Bible says, no, they're in the snare of the devil, of the devil doing his will is what it says. So you're going to argue, you know, we rarely argue someone into the kingdom. What we do, though, instead, we love them into the kingdom. And so I want to, to challenge you, think about those who you see as spiritual opposition, and, and, and you just outlove them. You say, well, that's not, doesn't that sound too manly? No, that's manly. That's the way of Jesus. Because what we're seeking to do is rescue them from the enemy's POW camp. That's our, the ultimate goal for us is not to win, a, win an argument, but to rescue. We're on a rescue mission. Consider Jesus, who faced opposition and destroyed it. How did he do so? He submitted to the will of the Father. He snuffed Satan out by offering himself to the Father's will. First, he prayed, always, but he prayed in the garden. He was taken up, uh, arrested. He set his heart on the cross for our salvation, he knew who his opposition was, and it wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jews. It was, it was satanic opposition that he was going to destroy. He remained gentle, patient, and humble. He refused to fight. In fact, it says he remained silent as a lamb to the slaughter. And we need to go the way of Jesus, which is counter to the way that the, that the flesh wants to fight the battle. But to remain silent or to enter in with understanding and love, seeking to understand first, is the way of the Spirit. And, it's, and watch this, it's an act of faith. You're trusting, God, you're going to fight this battle for me. This is what Nehemiah would say, the Lord's going to do this. It's not our doing. So in Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. See, even in our opposition or the opposition of others, even in persecution, we know this is true. The gospel advances because we respond in the way of Jesus. Love wins in the end, men. Love wins. And a godly man knows this. Ephesians 4, 27, give no opportunity to the devil. And when we respond uh, evil with evil or hate with hate, we, we, we don't advance the gospel at all. And so as we turn towards our groups now for our time remaining, I want you to consider spiritual opposition in your own life. Where is it coming from? How have you responded? 
How should you respond based on today's teaching? And what personal opposition perhaps are you facing? What sin are you up against and battling? Let other men pray over you and pray for you. Let's be honest with one another. Let's be men. Okay, so let me pray, and then we're going to head into our group time. Great to see you all this morning. Lord, thank you for this word that you've given us today. Thank you for the example of Nehemiah, and thank you for this, this word from Paul that we're to be, uh, be gentle and kind, and thank you most of all for the example of Jesus. Thank you for your spirit that allows us to live above the fray, to respond uh, to opposition in a way that would, would uh, confound our enemies and draw them to you. Lord, use this time now. As iron sharpens iron, we now uh, seek to sharpen one another. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's go.